The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello and welcome back to She Done It. Today we're continuing with the Summer Break guest series in the form of another episode of The Illusionist that deals with detective fiction. My friend Helen Zaltzman, who creates this show, is very kindly letting me play it to you while I have a much-needed break, and I hope you enjoy it. The title is A Novel Remedy. Fun fact, the interviewee here who talks about the role of fiction after the First World War is actually my husband. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gorem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. When you're not feeling well, which books do you turn to to make yourself feel better? I asked this question on The Illusionist Facebook and Twitter, and hundreds of you responded, but a few answers came up again and again. Douglas Adams, Terry Pratchett, J.R. Tolkien. That makes sense. Science fiction? Fantasy? Escape the real world. Jane Austen, P.G. Woodhouse, also escapist, thanks to period settings. And rich people problems, not your own health problems. Things you read when you were a child. Moomins, What Katie Did, Anne of Green Gables, taking you back to a time in your life that perhaps felt simpler or safer. Harry Potter, boarding school shenanigans, wizard problems, not real life problems. And, in particular, Agatha Christie, poison, gunshots, stabbing. Hang on, why would stories about murder make us feel better? Well, they're kind of supposed to make you feel better. 
Agatha Christie, according to Guinness World Records, is the best-selling novelist of all time, author of 66 novels, as well as numerous plays and short stories. Her first novel was published in 1920, two years after the end of the First World War, and between then and the start of the Second World War, nearly 30 books by Christie were published. The 1920s and 30s are now known as the golden age of detective fiction. British readers devoured works from authors such as Dorothy L. Sayers, Nayu Marsh and Marjorie Allingham, and Agatha Christie, of course. But she was also at the forefront of another British literary movement, one she may not have even been aware of, the literature of convalescence. I guess in the literal sense, we would use that to mean books you might read when you're ill or sick. And then Alison Light, an academic, used it to talk about Agatha Christie and other detective writers thinking more about a kind of nation in recovery, trying to get over something, particularly in this case, the First World War. This is Guy Cuthbertson. He's an academic who works on early 20th century history and literature. Literature after the war helps a nation to recover by offering visions of domestic comfort and offering reassuring solutions to the murder that often is the heart of the story and avoiding traditional ideas of heroism and masculinity, which are where uh, the hero has to often prove themselves through acts of killing and violence themselves. So, for instance, the detective in a lot of these stories will not be the one who actually goes and kills the murderer or anything like that, but simply provides the solution. And these are stories that ultimately avoid violence in any straightforward sense or in any scary sense and avoid sensation as well. They're actually strangely subdued um, as stories. The murder is weirdly unviolent, isn't it? And that's part of this idea of its popularity, particularly after the First World War, is that you're dealing with lots of death and murder, but it's not in the same way that it is in many people's actual experience or close family experience from the First World War or similar. People get killed, but you don't really get to see the killing, do you? It's always a body. (laughs) Um, There might be some blood and some screams, but it's hardly the kind of detective dramas and so on you get in TV these days, perhaps. Um, So it is safe. It is comforting. Hercule Poirot doesn't get his kid gloves dirty, grubbing around for forensic evidence, or put himself in grave danger chasing an armed suspect through a scary wood at night. Poirot studies clues and suspects in salubrious locations like country houses and fancy hotels and cruise ships. Nice work if you can get it, being a detective in interwar murder mystery literature. And what does it offer? It offers weirdly images of domestic calm, even though it is about murder in many cases. It offers violence where the violence is hardly present at all. It offers another idea of heroism so that we have Miss Marple, a little old lady, um, as heroine, or we have um, a Belgian refugee, another kind of elderly figure. They don't fit the, the usual idea of heroic action. And obviously, the important thing about detective fiction as well is that at the end of the story, we feel that the problem has been solved and that we can go back to a calm and happy society. And there is that sense of reassurance that, yes, there was this period of of evil, this period of horrible uh, experience, but now we're over it and we can recover. There's also that sense about a lot of the literature, like Agatha Christie, that it is also easy to read and enjoyable. Um, And maybe we don't want something difficult in the way that when you're ill in bed, you don't want to be reading very difficult books. Yeah, and it takes a lot of energy to 
be able to contain your own emotions. So if, if you don't have energy to spare, then of course you're not going to waste those reserves of energy, those limited reserves of energy on dealing with something emotional if you don't need to. But novels are not just soothing. There's more to this idea of them being a remedy. I'm Jane Gregory. I am a clinical psychologist working with obsessive compulsive disorder. Jane sometimes advises her patients to read novels. For people with severe OCD, often they're taking up hours and hours of their life, so they might be doing rituals for 10 or 12 hours a day. They might be spending most of their day thinking about their thoughts or thinking about how they feel or thinking about the impact of their illness. And so when you start to change that through the therapy, they're then left with this big gap and rumination likes to fill gaps. And so people end up just going over the same things in a way that's not leading to any kind of resolution. And so part of the process is working out how you fill that time and and ideally what people are working towards is working or volunteering or doing something that they feel invested in. But as an intermediary, they need something that's absorbing that can fill their time. Jane recently prescribed novel reading to a patient she's been treating for OCD with the purpose of getting her to spend time doing something absorbing. But the uh, side effect of that was that she became invested emotionally in the characters and realised that she could connect on an emotional level and experience these emotions that she was struggling to cope with when they related to her own life and her own experiences. She started connecting to the characters and empathising with them and feeling much kinder towards them than she could for herself. But just going through that feeling in a safe way helped her to realise that she could cope with that feeling. Why do you think it's easier to do that with um, characters in books versus people in real life? I think our defences are down when we're reading fiction. We go into it with a sense that we're doing it for entertainment and so we drop our defences and just go along with the story and so it's it's a nice sneaky way of getting in some safe emotional experiences or even changing our minds about things. There's some evidence that fiction is more effective at changing social opinion than non-fiction or specifically opinion pieces because we go into those with our defences up or go into it expecting it to match what we already think. Whereas if we're imagining it happening to somebody else and we're connecting with the characters and then we come across things that are different from what we how we think the world works or how the world should be, we're more likely to change our mind about it because we're going on this emotional journey with a character. Is there also an element that when it's someone in a book, you, the reader, have more control in the relationship because you can control the speed? If it's difficult, you can extract yourself in a way that you can't when there's a real person there. It's kind of one-sided. Yeah, I think that the, the key element here is your participation in it. So yes, you're able to control what you read you're choosing to read that story you're choosing that particular book but also while you're reading it you have to visualize what's happening you have to work out what they mean when they say that what they might be thinking what they might be feeling that would lead to that kind of behavior so you become an active participant in it so you become more invested in it in a way that you might not with television where it can just happen in front of you um, or in real life where people get defensive if you try and participate in their emotional experience. 
So in, in fiction, they can experience some emotions they don't want to be having, but in a safer way. Exactly. Uh-huh. Is one reason why you suggested books rather than telly as, as well as the interaction one has with that medium, just it takes longer. Well, there's so much telly now that it can take as long as you like, I guess. <laughs> there is a lot of telly. <laughs> yeah. I, the main thing with books um, is you're forced to do a bit of the work just by the act of reading. So it's already much harder to be thinking about something else while you're reading, even just the act of having to read the words and visualise what's happening that already starts off an active participation in what what you're doing. I think um, reading is probably the only entertainment form where I can't hear my internal monologue unless I've kind of drifted off the page. But I can keep tapping into my internal monologue when I'm watching TV. So if it's bad, um, I can listen to both things at once. (laughs) Yes. And the amazing thing about reading is that the story stops when you disengage. So you then return back to where you were. The story can't continue if you're not reading it. Yeah, it can't go on without you. No, and you have to be absorbed in it to be able to keep the story going. And we often think about, like particularly thinking about the idea of recovery from illness and in in the work that I do, recovery from um, anxiety and and obsessive compulsive disorder, we, we often think when I feel safe, then I will be able to become absorbed in something like reading and actually when it comes to change we have to do it the other way around so we need to start becoming absorbed in something and then the act of becoming absorbed in something and nothing disastrous happening as a result of that makes us feel safe so the action comes before the emotional or cognitive change and I suppose as well when you've got a book you know that none of the thoughts you're having that you think might affect the outcome of something will actually affect that outcome because the book's already been decided. Oh, yes, that's a very good point. Yeah, I hadn't really <laughs> thought about that idea. That you, you can't ruin the story. Um, you, you can't change the outcome. Well, unless it's choose your own adventure. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that you can't change the outcome and the fact that stories take a standard shape, like that most stories follow a particular arc and have a resolution at the end I think that's why it's a really safe thing to prescribe because it helps people to experience a beginning a conflict and a resolution and so you get the more you do that and if each chapter has a mini version of that as well that's even better because what people then experience is oh things resolve like even if they're really unpleasant and even if the resolution isn't what you want it happens, it ends, it, it things move on. Yeah. And so for people who are in a situation where they don't know how it's going to end, reading something that reminds them, like that they get an emotional experience of resolution that actually helps them to process that that's how life works, that things change, things move on, and nothing is actually, no no feeling you've ever had has ever stayed forever. But yeah, I suppose you've, you've weathered some crises as as a witness while you're reading the book and you made it so you're perhaps better able to deal with crises or being crisis adjacent in real life mm-hmm. yeah so you've you've weathered their crisis sort of on their behalf by being emotionally connected to them and you've weathered your emotional 
experience of that you've got through those emotions and you've come out the other side so probably the worst thing to do is to stop reading and just put a book down at the most traumatic point in the book and that's actually how with post-traumatic stress disorder that's one of the ways that PTSD keeps going is that whenever people remember the trauma they shut it down and stop thinking about it mid-trauma and so they don't get through to the point of resolution so the memory doesn't get completed in their mind it doesn't get connected to the resolution where they survived and and they're okay again or what how, what they feared was going to happen in the moment didn't happen or at least not as bad as they thought it was going to so they're always trapped at the worst part of it yeah so their body then stays on guard and under under threat now we're not saying that reading novels is a miracle cure don't prescribe yourself a book in place of seeking professional guidance but as a supplement to treatment, why not? There was a study that was done where I think they got the people to read for, might have been as short as six minutes, and the, the stress reduction that came from reading fiction for six minutes was better than attempting to do relaxation exercises. That along with stress reduction, so not only does it help you to physically feel better, but when your cortisol levels go down that also helps with sort of the physiological elements of the body it can help your immune system to function better so in terms of physical illness if you are less stressed with your physical illness then your immune system is able to do its job better so so theoretically it could help with your physical recovery as well as your emotional recovery what what does cortisol do cortisol is what is triggered off in times of stress and when it's working in a functional way what it does is it helps to energize us enough to deal with stress so we at optimum levels it helps us to focus better and to be um, able to problem solve and, and make decisions but what often happens is we go through periods of sustained stress and sustained levels of cortisol and it's not it's not so helpful when it's there all the time it's supposed to come and go as needed so a little a spike in cortisol every day is actually a really helpful thing but if the cortisol levels stay high then it's very draining for the body and the other functions of the body don't work so well. So how does cortisol respond to reading? The act of reading helps to reduce stress which then triggers off the parasympathetic nervous system which helps to bring everything back down to normal functioning. So that's the sort of regulating element of reading that if you're stressed or anxious it helps to bring everything down and if you're feeling low or flat it can help to energize you and the act of sort of engaging and participating in the story helps to lift you up. Do you think uh, it is more likely to work with fiction than non-fiction? I think it's more likely to work with fiction than non-fiction because our defenses are down when we're reading fiction we're not expecting it to offer us anything more than entertainment and so we let our guard down and we can connect with what's happening in a better way than we can with with non-fiction do you have a book that makes you feel better i tend to go in the opposite direction from all of this that actually when i'm not feeling well it's usually like my job is literally to be empathic and compassionate towards other people <laughs> and so if i'm not feeling well or feeling burnt out what I actually look to do is the opposite so I really love James Bond novels <laughs> ah. um, so something where I don't have to connect with the characters on any level it's just <laughs> p- 
pure entertainment. It doesn't seem like the characters have to exhibit much empathy towards each other either. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> yeah, it's um, slightly devoid of emotion. <laughs> I mean, there's not a lot of emotion in Agatha Christie either. The characters aren't necessarily grieving a lot. No, but there's, there's still an invest... Like, as a reader, you have to invest in the story because you, you want to work out what's going on. You want to connect with the story rather than the characters themselves. Whereas with James Bond, there's no, there's no real connection there. You're just along for the <laughs> ride. But now a murder book might be a lot more gritty and there probably isn't a detective with a nice moustache and <laughs> lovely Art Deco flat. Yeah, and that then takes you back to the thing of it takes a lot more energy to read gritty and gory stories because of the feeling of disgust that comes from gore. That's actually quite, again, quite a tiring emotion to be experiencing and it's not supposed to be a sustained emotion. We're supposed to remove ourselves from potential contaminants and that's why we get that feeling of disgust. And so to read a book where you're having to read a lot of that, it it's quite tiring because we're programmed to try and remove ourselves from that. Do you have a favourite that you read to make yourself feel better? Nine Tailors, I think, by Dorothy Arceus is a good example of that. It's um, one that offers a very nice solution in the end. Probably the best book you'll read about bell ringing, anyway. That's it for today's guest broadcast. A reminder that you can find The Illusionist at theillusionist.org and in all good podcast apps. So do go and binge your way through the rest of the show now. I've got one more guest episode coming up for you in August, and then I'll be back with a new She Done It on the 4th of September. In the meantime, you can still find me chilling out with a detective novel in the She Done It book club forum, available to paying supporters of the podcast through shedoneitshow.com slash membership. Tune in on the 21st of August for the last guest episode. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.